What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the podcast. Today we have Dr. Matthew Sharps. Uh, last name may sound familiar. He is Dr. Janet Price Sharps' husband. Dr. Matthew Sharps is a research psychologist, so he varies from Dr. Janet Price Sharps in that way. Dr. Janet Price Sharps actually takes what Dr. Matthew Sharps learns in the lab and through his research and applies it to a clinical setting. Dr. Matthew Sharps is a really, really interesting guy. He's very worldly. He's traveled all over the place to do his research. And uh, him, his lab, and his team are one of less than a dozen in the uh, world who are qualified to do the amount of research that they do on law enforcement, uh, first responders, and post-traumatic stress disorder. It was a pleasure to sit down and talk to him, and uh, here you go. Dr. Matthew Sharps, glad to finally have you on the show. Thanks for coming on, man. Oh, thanks very much. Let's give the audience a little bit of background as to who you are and uh, what you do. I'm a professor of psychology, experimental psychology at Cal State Fresno. I specialize in cognitive science, which is the study of thinking, memory, and language, and especially in the forensic realm where you apply that to law enforcement and the criminal justice system. So um, I understand you have a lab and whatnot. So what's kind of your daily routine as to what you do professionally? Well, I teach courses, several courses, one of which is in forensic cognitive science. And then my students and I conduct uh, quite a lot of research in several areas having to do with eyewitness memory, uh, with officer-involved shootings, with bomb detection, and with PTSD itself. So you guys do, like you hear on the news a lot, like simulators, uh, like you were just saying, uh, simulators that teach people and teach you and help you guys study officer-involved shootings and whatnot, correct? We do make use of some simulations, yeah. What we're after is what the processes are that are actually involved, for example, in decisions about uh, the adequacy of a police response. We've talked a lot about on the show about how to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, audience has heard a lot of stories uh, from guys on the show. What's going on in the human brain when uh, post-traumatic stress disorder takes place? Well, the human brain has gone through uh, bad experiences to which it's learned specific reactions. And most of those reactions are encapsulated in what we call the fight-or-flight response, where you basically the body is ready for action. It's ready to run or it's ready to fight. Uh, the problem with that is that the brain is a very unusual organ. It, takes, it depends who you talk to, but about a fifth, maybe a little more, of all the resources in your blood. Okay? And so when you need those resources in your body to get ready to, to run or, or to fight, well, your brain gets shortchanged. Now, there's parts of the brain you can't shortchange in a fight, the parts that control your, your emotions and your vision, etc., etc. So what you wind up doing is reducing blood flow to the parts of the brain, especially the prefrontal cortex. This is where you make your decisions, where you assess reality, and where you make sense out of the world. Which means that in a PTSD episode, in full fight or flight, fight or fight or flight, excuse me, you're really not assessing the world accurately. And this is where we can start to get things like daytime intrusions. We can get poor decision making, and of course, these psychological things. Like you make a bad decision, well, it leads to another bad decision, and on and on and on. So this is, it, it's a fairly devastating condition, very devastating situation with the brain. The brain's doing something that would be adaptive, if you were really being threatened. The problem is, in a PTSD episode, you're really not being threatened at that point. Your brain decides it is. Last time we talked, we talked a little bit about decision-making. How does post-traumatic stress disorder affect someone's ability to make a decision? Yeah, what you wind up doing, see, is not assessing reality point by point. We call it a feature-intensive processing. that lets you say, okay, I'm here in Fresno, California. It's 2019. I'm on my way to the store. Okay? 
So you just start thinking in what we refer to as gestalt terms. Now, that's kind of a loaded concept because what it means is the structure of the universe, structure of the world is still there around you, but you tend to ignore the bits and pieces of it, see? And so you can get triggered. The loud noise that really comes out of a car, well, something in your head interprets that as an artillery strike. Um, you know, you're driving down the road, somebody cuts in front of you, well, you start thinking you're being boxed in, you see something odd beside the side of the road, it starts reminding you of an IED, an improvised explosive device that you saw back in the field, and then this starts to trigger you into even more of that type of gestalt processing, so that you start pretty soon thinking that you're back, uh, back in the day when you were under fire. In your book, I read it in uh, in the chapter about post-traumatic stress disorder. You give an example of that, right? You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, several several good examples of that. Yeah, um, t- uh, the one I'm referring to in particular was the one about the uh, war vet sitting at home and he was taking a shot. Oh yeah, I think this is a really a good example. This was a guy. He was in uh, irregular combat toward the end of the Vietnam uh, situation, and some some bad uh, some bad things. Yeah. Anyway, so he's a, he's a professional man, works in a field basically of industrial science. Um, but anyway, he's sitting at home reading a paper, a, a, a study in his field, and he's bored with it, you know. Well, he's got these vertical blinds in his house, and he notices the vertical blinds, and he started, they started reminding him consciously of the bamboo that he saw back in Southeast Asia. And bamboo was a bit of a trigger because, you know, you can hide anything behind bamboo. There could be artillery back there. There could be an infantry squad back there. And what starts happening is the bamboo, at first it's kind of a joke, oh, that reminds me of bamboo. And then it starts making him nervous. He starts kind of looking more over the bamboo and goes, gosh, what could be behind there? And he starts thinking back about these actions that start literally scaring him, making him angry. And so he starts kind of not, you begin with a wonderful term called dissociation, where he's beginning to dissociate, to remove his the immediacy of life in his head. He's sort of going back into the jungle. Well, the discomfort uh, makes him feel like he'd like a drink, so he has one, okay? And we have this rather uncomfortable custom in our, our world uh, where we like to toast the dead, see, and you do that with alcohol, which gives him a wonderful excuse to fill the class up a couple more times, and by that time, uh, quite frankly, you're so drunk you've forgotten how much you're drinking, so you drink a little bit more. And this, uh, you know, the altered state of consciousness here starts to make him even more nervous. Also starts making him sweat more. He gets hotter, right? And he's kind of looking at that bamboo like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what it is. But it's it's no longer just the drapes, okay? Now it's not exactly bamboo. It's not exactly drapes, but it's very, very nervous-making. He goes outside the house where he's more comfortable. Well, there's no way to disguise where this guy lives. It's someplace in the deep south because the next part of this is where he lives looks a heck of a lot like the jungle there along the border. Vietnam. And before he knew it, his wife comes home and he's down on his hands and knees looking for uh, Viet Cong booby traps. Now, it's important to recognize this is not not a, not a person who is mentally ill. He functions perfectly well in a rather demanding intellectual occupation. But between his experiences, his memories, and a good amount of scotch, uh, he's running around an urban area in the American Deep South looking for the Viet Cong. Yeah, and I think that's one thing for people who aren't familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's one thing, it's a hard thing to differ because you talk about this guy who's, you know, living in America thinking he's in Viet Cong. And it's, it seems kind of crazy, right? But it's not these guys, guys or girls with post-traumatic stress disorder can function on a daily basis. But things, like you said, things trigger them. 
and they get upset and they start to have their uh, episodes. I think you've really hit on something very, very important there. People tend to see mental illness and mental health as two completely separate things, like either you do have the flu or you don't, and it doesn't work that way. A lot of these situations are making for veterans, officers, people who have been abused, other PTSD victims. A lot of these situations are simply triggering really very normal processes in the human brain. Those processes are there for a reason. The reason is so you can deal with actual threat. The problem is that it's possible for the brain under certain circumstances, triggering circumstances, to construct threat that really isn't there. And uh, although there's really no good research on this, it's good about the more training you have in dealing with those threats, the more likely you're going to be able to slide right into that training, do what you did before. The problem is it's in a completely inappropriate environment. Right. In your book, while we're on that subject, you talked about Wild Bill Hickok, too. Um, did you want to kind of give the viewers a little bit of that, and then we'll kind of talk about that in the history of PTSD? Yeah, I, I like those examples, those historical examples, and there's a number of them. My wife, Dr. Price Sharps, and I have been pursuing this for a couple of years now. Because you often hear this idea somehow that PTSD, well, if you're really tough enough, if you're really strong enough, you won't get it. And I've heard that from officers and from other, uh, from veterans. Uh, the other thing you'll often hear is, well, I don't know about this PTSD thing. Maybe it isn't even real. Maybe it's a modern invention because it's gotten you know, trendy and so people can fake it. Maybe they're all faking it. Well, uh, what Dr. Price Sharps and I did was uh, 5,000 miles of field work in the American West. And the reason we did that was to examine from, uh, both of us have significant experience in the criminal justice system. Them, to examine from the standpoint more or less of crime scene analysis, so just in a, in a way, a psychological autopsy is another term, a number of the battles and gunfights in the American West that led to total disasters. What we were looking for was consistency with PTSD. And what we found is that again and again and again, that's exactly what we're seeing. The symptoms of PTSD popping out in things as, as varied as Custer's Last Stand, as varied as the Fetterman Massacre, if people have heard of that one, and Wild Bill Hickok. Now, Hickok was about the toughest human being you'll ever meet in your life. He was running around as a scout sniper during the Civil War. He was then a lawman in some of those horrible uh, circumstances at the end of the cattle trails there up in Abilene in Kansas, and tremendous levels of violence in the guy's life. And he was basically... Um, one of the hardest, toughest, strongest people that America's ever produced. He, he killed a quite, a, quite a lot of people, never had a problem within his life. Then, as a result of a gambling incident, he accidentally, he must have been very, very highly aroused, because arousal's a big deal, right? When your heart rate goes up and your blood pressure goes up, well, all that blood's got to come out of someplace. It comes out of the, basically, it comes out of the front of your brain. That's a little oversimplified, but your prefrontal cortex just isn't getting the same resources. And so there's Hickok, whose habit is basically to draw and fire. Well, his deputy, only, apparently his only friend, comes up behind him, says something like, you know, wow, boss, that was a bad one. He's just at the end of a gunfight as a result of a gambling incident. Hickok whirls around and blows away his deputy. And everything changed at that point. That wonderful word, dissociation, where you don't see the world as it is, as it's real. Hickok decides, basically, he doesn't want to kill anybody anymore. And he decides to get married to this nice lady. Apparently she was a circus performer of the day. He goes out even farther west to get rich. He decides to be a gold miner. Now, when we examine the crime, the, the scene of Hickok's murder, we talked to some experts out there. Hickok hated getting dirty. He would always wear this beautiful clothes. He more or less dressed like a fashion model of the day. So you can imagine Bill Hickok down there grubbing in the ravines trying to find a piece of gold. You know? Well, apparently his gold mining period lasted two days. 
okay? And then he went back into the only thing he knew how to do, gambling, okay? Because he's got, he's got this weird fantasy. Somehow he's going to have the white picket fence and the wonderful, peaceful life someplace. Well, he's got so many enemies, it's utterly impossible, but he's not seeing that. He's going to that full dissociative state, really. And anyway, um, normally Hickok would sit, I don't want to belabor this point horribly, but he'd sit in a way in the bar when he was gambling that was in a very defensive position. Now, one of the things we often see when people are in extreme levels of heart rate, extreme arousal, they may suddenly become paradoxical. They may suddenly they may have an aggressive, hard person like Hickok. They may suddenly become passive. They may start engaging in you know, literally passive behavior. Hickok let a teenage kid order him into an unsafe position in that bar. Now, another thing that happens with PTSD and with fight or flight is you tend not to see the things on the periphery as important. You're glued to the, the poker game or you're glued to looking at this thing in the middle of your visual field. A guy that Hickok basically knew hated him came into the bar, and Hickok saw him do it. Hickok let him go right behind him, Hickok. The guy's behind him for a number of minutes, walks up behind him and blows his brains out. If Hickok had taken his usual seat, that wouldn't have happened. Well, the rest of it, I mean, this is a long-winded story, but the gist of it is this, that Wild Bill Hickok was one of, one of the most defended and defensive and competent gunmen. He's a warriors that you can imagine. And he had one incident that went beyond, his, I think, his view of himself. He kills his only friend, his deputy, by mistake. It's the area he doesn't make mistakes. He can't afford mistakes, and he's made one. Everything in his life changed, and it changed in a way that made him completely dissociate from who and what he was engaging in paradoxical behavior that gets him killed. And one thing I like to say to, to veterans and to officers is, if Pete, and, oh, I need to back off this, I'm sorry, because the fact of the matter is that, I mean, you don't have a time machine. We can't go back and give tests to Wild Bill Hickok, but everything in his behavior is consistent with a galloping case of PTSD. My point is, whether, whether you're SWAT or special forces or whatever else, if PTSD can happen to Wild Bill Hickok, it can happen to you. This is not something that only happens to people who aren't strong and powerful. Hickok was the quintessent warrior, and it happened to him. Hmm. Yeah, the reason why I brought that up is because um, when I first read your book, I was I was thinking about Wild Bill Hickok and how long ago that was, and mm-hmm. for you to say that he showed signs of post-traumatic stress disorder due to your studies. And then uh, on episode six of this podcast, Joe Cadena <clears throat> mentioned uh, you know his grandpa was in World War II, and we think about made me really think about the veterans and, and everybody who's been through post-traumatic stress disorder, all these wars we've been through, and finally we're talking about it, finally we have a name for it, and people still doubt it. So mm-hmm. what would you say to the doubters out there who are saying post-traumatic stress disorder is some fantasized thing? Yeah. Well, we've had it for a long, long time. In the American Civil War, it was the soldier's disease. In World War One, they changed that to shell shock. The idea was you had to get a, you know, something like a cannonball had to go off next to you. Well, World War II, it turned out a lot of guys, well, they were male at the time, uh, came through this with the same symptoms without having had a direct explosive device going to binary arm. So they changed that to combat fatigue. And there were a couple of other terms through the Korea era. We like acronyms, so it's PTSD. But the same symptoms are recorded back to the American Civil War. And when we were running around on that 5,000 miles of field work, uh, we saw case after case after case of this. It'll be going into a, a study we're presenting this uh, at one of the conferences this fall and into a new book we're working on. But uh, I'll just give you one quick example. Okay, this whole idea of dissociation and basically losing the way you're seeing the world, starting to act differently. Okay? There was one case, and this is a fairly obscure case, where we were wrong. 
is the Fetterman massacre in northern Wyoming, and the guy responsible, Fetterman, didn't seem to have a problem. He wasn't a pleasant person by modern standards, but there was no signs of PTSD. We're going, okay, okay, we got one that's wrong. And then we actually went to the site and talked to the experts and walked over the battlefield, and it turned out that Fetterman had actually been chasing, trying to get back the guy who was actually responsible for the Fetterman massacre. And he was an inveterate alcoholic and gambler, and when he was killed by the Sioux Indians, as a result of his own rather stupid, rather, no, it's not stupid, impulsive and dissociative actions, okay? Um, Only two of his wives showed up to collect his benefits. This was a guy with some serious impulse control problems. In other words, the one situation we found that did not fit the profile it turned out that when we found the guy responsible, he did fit the profile. So, And nobody in the 1870s or 80s was talking about PTSD. A few people, you know, Grandpa was living out back and we just were trying to keep him safe. A few people were talking about the soldier's disease and they were whispering about it. And as far as we can tell, the symptom picture is identical. So this has been around for a very long time. Yeah. <clears throat> I was actually watching a show uh, this past week. And um, it's actually, it's based on true events and true stories, but it's about prohibition and guys who came back from World War One, And mm-hmm. a lot of these guys who were actually in the mob and in those types of gangs were all World War One vets. And a lot of the reason why they're able to kill people and do these horrible things is because they've been through post-traumatic stress disorder. And, uh, made me really think about other things that are going on in this world right now as a result to people coming back from a very long war we've just been in. Um Having said that, though, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I want to go back to it. Uh, what types of things trigger people uh, to have episodes, and, and why does that take place? Well, there's a variety of them, okay? Um, one of the things that's a real trigger is fatigue. When people get uh, need to get to sleep, right, they start having the dreams, and everybody has the dreams. Uh, the dreams wake them up. They don't get enough sleep. Sometimes they'll wake up out of the dream in what we call paradoxical sleep. They're still in REM, uh, rapid eye movement sleep. And there's a partial paralysis there. Well, suppose you're sleeping at a fairly shallow level, and you wake up, and you're still in the dream, but in the dream, you're now awake and in your room, and the bad guys are still in your room. Well, I've seen this with several uh, veterans, people who will then basically try to get out of bed, try to get access to a weapon, etc., and they're partially paralyzed. The bad guys are standing there laughing at them or aiming at them or whatever. It's pretty horrifying. And then I'm going to sleep well the next day. So now we've got that fatigue, and we start to feel that sort of sense of dissociation, like the world isn't really all that real. In fact, what we're thinking about, whatever happened to us in Iraq or Afghanistan or the highlands or wherever else, right in Vietnam, um, well, that seems to become more real to us today. We're kind of living in our own head, you know, thinking about this stuff. And then you get an incident on the street. You see people dressed like they were back in the combat zone. Or you hear, you know, the, it's, it's classic, but it does happen. Car backfires, okay? And this will start triggering the daytime intrusion, where it's, it's you basically start to behave as if you were back in the real world situation, in the, excuse me, in the PTSD situation. Um, a variety of other factors can be very important for this. We're seeing much more PTSD today out of this uh, long-term uh, combat involvement in the desert there, much more than we did in uh, World War II or other wars, in which the operational tempo, the combat factors, may have been higher. So what's really going on? Well, one of the things we see in this in the modern uh, situation is tremendous uncertainty, okay? If you did a year in Vietnam, you went back to the world. You could volunteer for another tour, but that was up to you. 
But today, you know, the resources are stretched so thin that, well, you may have to go back. Oh, don't worry, our unit doesn't have to go back. We have so many points, so we won't have to go back. And then they invent this thing called joint tasking, where you think you're in the Air Force, and suddenly, uh, this happened to a friend of mine, suddenly you wind up, you know, spending a year basically working with the Marine Corps on the ground with the sort of thing that would never have happened to an Air Force officer 20 years ago. And so you got this interesting problem, I think, that the uncertainty gets in there. You're not quite sure who can I rely on, who can I trust. And that starts to enter in and create this more gestalt perspective. And Dr. Preissure, I was going to really speak to that, the interaction of that with the fatigue and the sleeplessness. And then, you know, if you put the alcohol on top of it, it's uh, just a wonderful agent for dissociating farther and farther. So there are a few important things to do. Well, one of which is to sleep. Uh, One of which is to put down the scotch. But that's not exactly a cure. It's too oversimplified, isn't it? Uh, sometimes people have had success with things like you know, when they start to feel they're back in the jungle. They start staring at your watch. It's a nice civilian watch. It's not the army watch. Look at your sleeve. It's not It's not olive drab. Your sleeve is whatever color your civilian is. Look around. This is Fresno. See, so you look at the date on your watch. Right now mine says 15. Well, the 15th of what? Well, it's the 15th of the month in 2019. So if you can ground yourself, this is something we're working on now, and it's hypothetical, as I'm thoroughly tested, but if you can ground yourself in the immediacy of reality, I am in Fresno, California, or wherever you are, New York City or Boston, in 2019, it's February 15th, and I'm actually going down to, you know, God knows what, Orchard Supply Hardware to buy a rake to deal with my lawn, you know. If you can keep yourself grounded in the immediacy of physical reality, that may be helpful, because... One of the, the, the Holy Trinity, really, uh, in my laboratory, we've designed uh, what is certainly the most effective bomb detection training ever, and we've designed it based on cognitive principles. And those principles are to have a prior framework for understanding things very explicitly on a very feature-intensive level. And if you're looking at the world in those terms, with to- total awareness of the situation I'm in right now, it may help to keep the previous situations that basically are there in the the landscape of nightmare, may keep those out of the immediacy of reality. And that's something we're working on now. Yeah. Sleep. A lot of people who listen to this podcast and are not aren't familiar with post traumatic stress disorder, they always mention, "Wow, everybody who's on the show always talks about how they can't sleep." What's mm-hmm. going on in the brain when uh, these guys are having trouble sleeping? It's not very, very well known. The fact is, it's a dirty little secret that we don't understand that much about sleep. We have we can characterize the various phases of it you go into and out of as you go through through the night. Example of that is some parts of the brain actually want to be more active rather than less when you're asleep. But basically what we think is going on here is that you're just not getting into the deep sleep that allow you to go through the multiple cycles you have to have, okay? I don't want to get into a lot of really boring detail, but that REM sleep, the rapid eye movement where you have your partial paralysis, we think... You, some people think all dreaming happens there. Certainly a heck of a lot of dreaming happens there. But the point is, if you don't go into that, you don't make the proper changes to the brain cells, the neurons, that you need to process the events you've learned about. There's another stage of sleep called slow wave, and, if, and this has been done experimentally. If you, if you wake people up out of slow wave, let's say we taught them a bunch of stuff on Wednesday, okay, and then we don't we keep, we, they, we don't sleep, but we wake them up every time they're in slow wave on Wednesday night. We give them a test on Thursday, they don't do as well. So we're not sure what the neurology is there. So REM is definitely do with with was basically the technical term is doohickeys in the brain cells. Okay, but slow wave keeps you from learning. Now, so point being, here I am. 
I learned that I really shouldn't do the kind of thing I've done today because I went into my PTSD situation. Well, if I don't sleep, those lessons aren't going to be much help to me. Or if I, can't, if I find a competent psychologist, then emphasis on the word competent because you really need mental health practitioners, which, which I am not. I'm an experimentalist. I don't treat anybody. Okay, I, I just do research. But I've seen a heck of a lot of this. The mental health professionals really have to understand the nature of PTSD. They have to understand what it is, what your actual duties are as a police officer. Okay? If, if the, 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 the psychologist is, or the psychiatrist is second-guessing police duties, oh, my goodness, how could you do something that awful? Um, lots of times, I've seen this many times, the, 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 the psychologist, psychiatrist simply is living in a, a very different and somewhat artificial world. You've got to have a psychologist that really understands what these things are, what these experiences are, what they actually mean, what it is to be the kind of person that you had to be to succeed in the field. And if that person can be there, well, that person can often get you to uh, to, to sleep. Dr. Pryor, for example, has had enormous success with this. But they've got to relax enough to get to the point where they feel safe enough that they can actually go through the normal night's sleep. And I guess I'm babbling on a bit long-windedly here, but the point here is there's different aspects of sleep, and you need them all. And so, for example, you can knock yourself out, right, with alcohol, and uh, you'll be wide awake three hours later, and you're not getting back to sleep that night. And if you're a police officer, well, that means you're going out on the street uh, with, what, three, four hours of sleep and your sleep-wake cycle is disrupted? Right. Uh, I'm not a medical doctor, but many of the prescription sleep aids do not provide true natural sleep. And you can wind up with some, some, pretty, significant, some pretty significant problems there. Um, one of the big deals, if you're in the extended period of high arousal, right, is the chemistry, and without going into great detail, right? Well, adrenaline goes through your system. It just hits you like a hammer, okay? Tightens up your muscles. It's a good thing. You want tight muscles. You want big blood vessels. But, of course, those big blood vessels and all that high blood pressure, all that high heart rate, that's keeping all that blood out of your front of your brain you needed to think with, right? But, see, that adrenaline response has to be fueled by something. The fuel is a chemical called cortisol. And cortisol, as it breaks down, is, quite frankly, very caustic, so when you're in the fight-or-flight response, cortisol, I put in the book, but cortisol basically slides some prime rib and a cheesecake into your body so you're really ready to go, okay? But there's a price to it, and it starts to deteriorate various tissues, okay? It starts to, there's some pretty good evidence that some of those tissues that deteriorates are in, the, in a brain organ called the hippocampus, and that's where you form your new memories, which means that you know, this entire complex of behaviors, complex of things happening in the brain is uh, it's pretty negative you need to arrest these processes if you're going to find successful treatments and successful resolutions for PTSD okay we talked a lot about your book um What's the, what's the, why don't you give people the title of your book and uh, where they can find it? Yeah, the title of my book is Processing Under Pressure. There's a subtitle also. It's published by Loose Leaf Law Publications, and you can reach them through uh, www.looseleaflaw.com. And there's also a phone number there. The easiest way to get the book is, frankly, to order from the publisher. You can get it through bookstores, et cetera, but it's faster. And I'm not sure, maybe a little cheaper to get it directly through the publisher. But you can find it on, like, Amazon or anything like that, oh, too, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. it's on Amazon. Yeah, cool, yeah. cool. So, what's what's next for you? you have anything you're working on, or any what uh, any new books? Yeah, we're working on several uh, new things. One of which is a project having to do with jury responses to police uh, responses in you know 
in, in violent crime situations. Uh, Dr. Bryce Sharps and I are currently working on uh, two books, one of which is on the subject of PTSD, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of what we talked about today, the fact that PTSD does have a very long history and heritage and what we can learn from that, but also what we've learned about the nature of PTSD, and this is so important, as a modern phenomenon. Now, I'm not talking here about, oh, it's changed, because it hasn't, but the way we treat things, okay? Uh, lots of treatments in the past have basically had you wallowing in what happened to you back in the field or something. Well, unless you can come to a new successful resolution of that, it's really not going to help. What we're really doing is re-traumatizing you. We're putting you back in the situation, and basically it's not, it's not going to help. And so what we're focusing on here is, mod- again, this word modern, okay, it's a useful word, <laughs> modern cognitive pro- approaches based, and here's an idea, in actual experimental cognitive science, to the problem of treating PTSD so we actually get successful resolutions so that people are not sitting there, you know, suddenly my new career is treating my PTSD. So the PTSD becomes a thing of your past, and then you can get on with life. <clears throat> and Dr. Uh, Dr. Sharps, I know that you're not clinical in your research, but everyone who comes on the show has to answer it for me. Uh, what's your advice to someone who's going through PTSD right now? Well, several things. Um, some of these are quite facetious, I'm afraid, but first, put down the scotch, okay? Secondly, uh, you should not try to deal with this by yourself, okay? The thing you also need to do is recognize that much of what you've learned, in, it, depends, it depends who you are, what your agency is. And if you've come up to PTSD from, for example, a situation of child abuse, um, you may not even recognize you have it, okay? Um, but if you're in an agency, police agency, the military or something, there are a number of resources for you, some of which may not be in your best interest. Uh, the, 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 the people around you saying, just suck it up, you know, it's no problem. Uh, no, that's not going to work. You're going to keep having the dreams. The dream's going to get worse and worse. You're going to start self-medicating. It's a bad thing. So what you've got to do is get psychological help. Get somebody, and it, it can't be just any psychologist you're pulling off the street. Somebody, uh, you, you'll run into cases where a psychologist saying, oh my gosh, you had to shoot someone. Oh, you'll never get over that. Oh my gosh, well... Lots of people in life have had to engage in violence in the line of duty. That's something your, your psychologist needs to be a person who can understand. And so what you've got to do, quite frankly, is get the, the competent psychologist who gets it, who can lead you through the processes. Because most human beings cannot do that on their own, no matter how tough they are. Okay? Well, you're not going to find somebody with more of a warrior mind than Wild Bill Hickok. And his PT, as far as I can tell, his PTSD killed him. So what that psychologist is going to have to help you do is get to sleep, to recognize the triggering cues in your environment that put you back in the jungle or back in the desert or back in the Humvee, okay? To recognize that there may be limits to you now. You may have had a number of explosions that rattled your brain around. You may have to develop new skills because your body has been changed. But all this is going to require competent assistance from somebody who gets it. So basically, the thing is to get off any of the chemical assistance, get with a psychologist who gets it. If the psychologist doesn't get it, you go find a different one. And then you proceed on a... And the other thing is, um, it's hard. It's very difficult, too, because you're changing mind. You're changing mentality. One of the reasons you have PTSD is that you don't feel safe. Well, my gosh, so we start saying, oh, hey, let's change your skill set, which makes you feel even less safe. So you have to stick with this. It requires 
effort. Now, luckily, when you're dealing with veterans, you're dealing with police officers, these are people who uh, have significant self-discipline, and they've been able to respond to courses of essential discipline. Patients who can't, it's very difficult. So another factor is is to approach PTSD with a disciplined mind, or approach it the same way you would have learned any skill set for operations in the field, for operations in a police department, or for, you know, in, in, in the non uh, populations not in those professions, the discipline you'd need to achieve anything important in life, because achieving that level of health, the, the point where you're not looking behind yourself, where you're not waking up in a cold sweat every night, okay, where you don't wake up in the night with these nightmares, right, where either the bad guys are right there in the room with you, or there's just something terrifying over there on the skyline that's going to be here any second. To get rid of those dreams is extreme. It's of extreme value because then you're finally able to sleep. You can get up the next morning and you're not going, oh my God, do I have to go face the day? You know, it's, just, um, it's, it's worth doing, but it takes, this is the hard part. It, it takes tremendous discipline. It takes a lot of work. It takes the help of somebody who gets it. And you know, that's about as much as I, as a non-clinician, can say. But I've watched these processes many times in a lot of people, and that seems to be the successful course. Dr. Matthew Sharps, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. And as always, after me and Matthew talked, me and Dr. Jana Price Sharps sat down and talked about the science behind PTSD. Dr. Jana Price Sharps, once again, we're back at it. Uh, episode number seven. Awesome. Um, so interviewed Matthew and, uh, we had the pleasure of you sitting in on the interview. So you're pretty familiar with what we talked about, but, um, the first thing we talked about was PTSD episodes. What do you do when you get a PTSD episode? How do you handle it? And what's kind of like the step-by-step process? Well, initially before treatment, a lot of times people aren't registering that they're having an episode. Uh, they just hear their spouse or significant other say things like, why are you angry all the time? Why did you check out on me? Why are you not hearing me? Uh, What's going on with you? You act so weird. And so a lot of times people aren't realizing what is going on. And then a lot of times our first responders just think, well, I'm going crazy, but I can't tell anybody because if I tell anybody, I'm going to end up with a fitness for duty or I'm going to lose my job and then I'm not going to be able to support my family. So they just shut it down. They just try and pretend nothing's happening. And, and unfortunately, it's kind of like running on a broken knee. The farther they go, the worse they get. And as Dr. Sharps talked about, now they're not sleeping, they're having nightmares, they're, um, and the, the sleep is so important. And I know I say this every time I'm on the air, but if you're not getting sleep, your brain cannot heal, it just, period. It's just you're not going to get better until we get you sleeping. And so that's step one. Step two is to start understanding that, as Dr. Sharps talked about, and I like the way he talked about it, PTSD is your mind taking information from the past event and putting it in the current event when it's not applicable. So if you are a a veteran and you've been overseas and you know that things beside the road contain IEDs, well, your brain starts to be very cautious about anything beside the road. So now you're in 
where we are, Fresno, California, and you're driving down the highway, you see something by the road, the brain is not going, oh, it is 2019, I am no longer over there. The brain is going, oh my God, we're in danger. And it's not making the distinction of where they are at. So when a person begins to listen to their body, and go, okay, I'm getting adrenalized because my jaw's starting to tighten up, my shoulders are starting to tighten up, my hands are starting to clench. Uh, that means adrenaline's flowing through my system. What am I seeing as dangerous? Oh, it's a bag. Oh, we're in Fresno. It's very unlikely that's an IED. I suppose it could be, but it's very darned unlikely. So being able to ground themselves in the moment, uh, Dr. Sharps mentioned looking at their watch. I have no idea why that works, but I've used that for um, probably 25 years. Uh, when people look at their watch, it's like it brings them back into the here and now. Um, but saying things literally to themselves, look, I'm in Fresno or I'm in wherever, and I am not back in that situation. I'm going to be okay. Um, understanding that their body may be over responding to things rather than just looking at their significant other as the problem. That's the other thing that happens. They'll get triggered and now they're mad, but they can't figure out why they're mad. So the person standing in front of them, now they're mad at them. And they start almost picking a fight because it must have been something they did. And so listen to your significant other. If your significant other is consistently telling you, why are you angry all the time? Maybe you should consider not saying back to them, no, I'm not angry all the time. I'm fine. Rather than, huh, I wonder what is going on with me. And maybe I need to look at a pattern of when I'm angry and what is making me angry. Part of that is working with your spouse or significant other to go, okay, I want you to look at when I'm getting angry and let's see if we can figure this out of, of what's causing that. So that is something that they can do, starting to look for those patterns and what might be triggering. Smells are a big trigger. Um, you know, diesel fuel is a big one. Burning, uh, the scent of burning is a big trigger for some people. Scent, uh, the smell of blood can be a big trigger. Uh, you know, so there's, there's a number of different triggers in helping people to begin to identify them so that they can walk through them. Okay, I know I'm going to be here and this may happen, so I need to walk through it and be prepared for it. And, uh, you kind of mentioned smell and made me think, and I want to share with the listeners. Uh, recently, you've uh, opened my eyes to like scent therapy, aromatherapy. You want to talk about that a little bit? So, there is some research uh, coming out of Europe, uh, specifically Germany, uh, some throughout the UK, talking about uh, scent therapy like lavender tends to calm. Um, so, I look at it. Take anything that might help and do it. <laughs> you know, do I have all the research showing absolutely that it helps? But if it does, that's great, you know. And so I, <laughs> I have essential oils on my, on my table. And a lot of my guys come in and the first thing they do is they pick up essential oil and, and put it on themselves. Do I have absolute proof that it's working? No. Do I know that they like it? Great. And so I tell them, fill your life with things that are good, positive, happy, 
pretty whatever. If you notice in my office, I have stuff everywhere, little knickknacks everywhere that are related to different things. And I will catch my guys like I have a particular gentleman who likes hummingbirds. Uh, because culturally, when he was growing up, he was told that your loved ones, you know, will come back as hummingbirds. So um, he likes hummingbirds. So I have hummingbirds hanging up there. And he looks at them. And you can just see his whole countenance calm down. You know, so I just, I teach them, surround yourself by memories that are good, by things that are good, by pictures that are good. And, and if it helps calm the system... If it, help make, it helps to make them feel better, that is great. Uh, scent is, olfactory senses are very primal, very primal. So if you walk into your mother's kitchen and she's cooking, I don't know, enchiladas, and you go, oh my gosh, and then you remember, oh my gosh, I remember a time when, you know, that scent is very, very powerful. And so the other thing that I will do is if they grab an essential oil and they're smelling it, I'll take them through a happy visualization because I begin to pair that scent with good, with calm, with happy. You know, do I have scientific evidence that it's working? No. Do I have clinical evidence that it's working? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, just to touch on that a little bit, I was uh, telling someone about that, and they're like, ah, oh, that's in your head, it's it's a placebo. And I was like, hey, that placebo works really well, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I use the invigorating one, which smells like uh, orange citrus, and it reminds me of my grandmother's house, because her neighbor had an orange tree that I'd go get oranges from all the time, so it helps. Yeah, it does. And there like you, you said, you just got to create, I think it's a long-term game, and it's easier said than done, obviously, but you really just got to create an environment that's positive. Yes. Uh, to get through anything and also to get through post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And calm the system down. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, one thing that me and Matthew talked about was the fact that a lot of people don't think post-traumatic stress disorder is real. They think it's some sort of a fantasy or something. What do you say to those people um, that doubt it? And, you know, I have heard people say that. And... You know, even some of my first responders say that to me. You know, I don't know if this is really happening. Is this really a problem? And I asked them, okay, if if your knee was hurting, would you think it's injured? And they'll say, well, yeah, of course. Well, what what makes you think the brain is any different? The brain can break just like any other body part. And but the good thing is the brain is typically fixable or at least pretty fixable. But the first, you know, step in anything is to realize, oh, I'm hurting. That's my brain telling me there's a problem. And so the brain doesn't hurt physically, typically, unless you have a migraine. But how it tells you that it's hurting is things like anxiety, panic attacks, depression, uh, just feeling suicidal, feeling hopeless. That is the brain. I look at it as the brain kind of knocking and saying, hello, are you paying attention to me here? There's a problem. We need to deal with this. And because we treat or we teach first responders, like Dr. Sharps is talking about is, you know, you just need to toughen it up. You need to suck it up. You need to, you know, walk through it. You're going to be fine. Um, The problem with that is you can do that in the short term. If you do that in the long term, it just gets worse and worse. And so understanding the sooner you start listening to your brain and taking action, the faster you heal. And 
I am a believer that people have the right to have a happy life and they have the they have the right to not just endure life but to enjoy life and so many of our first responders are just enduring they're getting up you know today just because they have to and if you you know i think i've said this before you know they have the ipad that's on countdown and they still have 10 years before retirement i'm like if you're on countdown 10 years before retirement there's something wrong we need to fix this Dr. James Price-Sharps, as always, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. That's all for today, guys. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Really hope that helped and kind of explained the science behind PTSD. We'll be back in a few weeks with another one. Thanks. As promised, after every show, we like to give a resource, and here's one of them. I love Brendan Bouchard. I listen to him all the time because, again, you're going to fill your cup with the powerful and the positive and the good. And Zig Ziglar, always my favorite. He has wonderful YouTube videos. I've been listening to him almost all my life. And those are just good pick-me-ups. They remind us what's good in life. They remind us what's happy in life. They, they put our focus back on the good, the powerful, and the positive, as Zig Ziglar would say. <laughs>